Church, if you would, go ahead and please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. Um, we're just going to read a, a portion of chapter 7. In fact, we're going to start halfway through verse 11 at that word also. Um, so find yourself in 2 7, Samuel 7 at verse 11. You'll see that little break, the last sentence. I don't know what it may be in other translations, but just look at the last sentence of verse 11 of chapter 7. And would you, if you found your place there, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11, we'll call it B. And we're going to read to verse 17. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. Here's our memory verse. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word now. Gracious Father... We thank you already just for being here with your people. Thank you for abiding in us with your spirit. You have made us your house. Thank you for the work of your son Jesus Christ that through faith in him we are able to enter into your presence this morning without fear. Having consciences that have been sprinkled clean. Father, thank you for the reminder that there is coming a day not too far from now when you will bring to completion that which is promised. You will make your dwelling here among us forever and ever. Oh, how we long for that day to see your son make all things new. Lord, would you encourage, equip, and build up your people this morning by the preaching of your word we ask in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. So have you ever thought you knew someone and then, bam, something happens and you realize you didn't really know them the way you thought you did? Well, in our passage today, David actually has one of those moments. David starts chapter 7 with a wrong perception of the Lord. And he comes in contact with the word of the Lord and that changes his perception and he is brought into a deeper knowledge of God. What we're going to see is his response to that, but we've got to start all the way at the beginning, right? So here's the big idea. And I'll admit, I wrestled with this big idea and probably changed it 80 times this week. And if I had three more hours, I'd probably change it 80 more times. But here's what I came up with. The big idea is the Lord is more faithful than you think. So our confidence should be greater than it is. That's the big idea. The Lord is more faithful than you think. 
So our confidence should be greater than it is. That's just a big picture statement for really chapter 7 and 8, though I don't think we'll get to chapter 8 this morning. But the first thing I want us to notice in that, and we see at the outset of this text, is that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And I know we probably think, well, duh, but do we really? (laughs) I think we see a subtle hint here that it's not so clear to us all the time that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, let's read the first three verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says this, in 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 3, it says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king, being David, said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, this seems like a really good start, doesn't it? But, but what we're going to see almost immediately is that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. See, David in verse 2 thought that the Lord needed a house like his. Have you ever heard the expression, good intentions, bad judgment? I think that's where we're at in verses 1 through 3. David here has good intentions in verse 2, but his judgment was way off. David intended to build the Lord a house like his house, a house of cedar, it says. And know that the reference to a house of cedar is no small thing. Almost all of our houses are built with wood, surely, but it was not so in the ancient Near East. Trees were hard to come by. To have something built with wood meant that it was significant, it was important, it was valuable. So a house of cedar is a magnificent house. Just think mansion. So so David's reasoning here, it's rational, right? You can really hardly fault him for desiring to do something good for the Lord. We've all been there, haven't we? I am quick with good intentions to help my wife. Yet, I begin to err in thinking that I know exactly what she needs. So I will do her good and she will be blessed in the midst of my glory. What she needs is to go out and have a good time. She just needs to go grab some dinner with me and that will make everything better. But my good intentions often stem from poor judgment. Sometimes what my wife actually needs from me is to just clean something like anything. Well, like me, David did not actually know the Lord as well as he should have. David thought that he knew what the Lord needed, what would please him, but in the end he didn't. He misjudged the situation because he misjudged his God. And so I would argue here that David's theology proper is slightly off. By that, I mean his understanding of who God is. And so, here at the outset, we see a reminder for all of us. It is so easy for our good intentions to actually flow out from bad theology. A reminder that our initial ideas, our thoughts, no matter how noble on the surface, guys, listen, they must be held up to the scrutiny of God's word. 
at every level, always, our good intentions must always be evaluated in light of God's word. Always. Why? Because he alone knows what is good. He alone knows what is beautiful and true. And so this lesson is actually even amplified in David's re- or Nathan's response to David. Did you notice what Nathan said in verse 3? Look at that again with me. It says, Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now let's give David credit here. David ran his building project by the local prophet. So, so to be clear, what we're, we're not reading in David's desire to build a house, a Lord, a house, we're not reading some grievous sin here. I'm just pointing out that, that David thought he knew, and he didn't. But notice verse 3, Nathan actually falls into the same trap, doesn't he? He gives a quick affirmative, apparently feeling confident that, that all David desired to do must be good, for the Lord was with him. Now, I'm not so sure that Nathan would have gave this same response if the events of 2 Samuel 12 took place before 2 Samuel 7. If you know, you know. But he does, in his statement, declare a critical truth that we've learned so far through 2 Samuel. It's a phrase that appears over and over again. We've seen it. David, the Lord, is with you. The Lord is for you. Nathan declares it, and it's true. The Lord is with David. And it would appear that that fundamental reality is probably what provoked Nathan to be a little overconfident in David's ability to do whatever his heart desired. But but what I want us to see is that King David and Nathan the prophet, they both agree that David's thoughts are in keeping with the Lord's thoughts. That even Nathan the prophet was capable of a good intention but poor judgment. He intended to support, encourage, and affirm David, but he failed to know what the Lord's judgment was on this matter. So there's a second lesson here, and it's interesting in this case. It reminds us that, that uh, that prophets, let me say it this way, prophets are not infallible. Prophets are not infallible. Now what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is is the prophet in the Old Testament context was not always speaking infallibly. Now, of course, everything we have that's written in the word of God is infallible. But when the prophet went home and he gave his wife some counsel or he instructed his friends or he sat around the dinner table discussing theology, he didn't speak on behalf of the Lord. There's only one prophet who has always and only spoken truth. There's only one prophet that needed to distinguish between thus says the Lord and here's my opinion because all that he said he heard in the presence of his father and Christ alone is that prophet. But but Nathan is not Jesus. So his first response was an example of good intention but poor judgment. And we're reminded that the Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In fact, look at verse 4 now. It says, But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying... That but, the first word in verse 4, but, it reminds us something. It's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. Write it down if you don't know it. Proverbs 16.1, it says this, The preparation of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 
So, so David here, remember, he's trusting that his thoughts are the Lord's thoughts. So Nathan trusted that David's heart is the Lord's heart, but both find out that they are mistaken. See, it's interesting, the, the text we read even last week, I think, in our prayer of confession, Jeremiah 17, 9, it's one we all know, right? It tells us, the heart is deceitful above all else, above all things, sorry, New King James Version, and desperately wicked. But, but we tend to only observe that or think of that verse when we look and see others lusting or passions rise up or when we see some grotesque or obvious sin, but that's not really the case at all. In fact, if you think of the context of Jeremiah 17, the deception is far more subtle than that. The deception of Jeremiah 17 and the deception of the heart of man, it's all involved with a misplaced trust in man. It's trusting in the strength of the flesh. In fact, let's read the context of Jeremiah 17 to see it for ourselves so you don't have to take my word for it. It says this, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And then here comes our verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Wicked how? Because of misplaced trust. And so just keep following that thread all the way back. Where does misplaced trust come from? It's a lack of knowing our God. The reality is when you confront the revelation of God in his word as we come to know who God is, the fruit of that is trust. You hear what I'm saying? Listen. You can't know who the Lord is. I mean, truly know who the Lord is and not trust Him. Failing to trust is the fruit of a darkened mind that has twisted and perverted the character and nature of God. Now, now again, in our text, the point is not that David's darkened his mind here. Remember, we, we know David. We talked about it last week, right? David is a man after God's own heart. He's the man that's been called. In fact, Nathan's not even wrong here. God is with him. And yet, here is that subtle temptation in the heart of every man to think that we think God's thoughts after him. We don't. Friends, you and I, we have to have our minds constantly renewed by the word of God. We need to have his light constantly being the path of our each and every step. The moment that we think, okay, I see far enough ahead now, you can turn off the light for a second, Lord, we are lost. The darkness sets in. We forget who our God is and we misplace our trust. We start saying silly things like, you know what, Lord? I'm going to build you a house. That's what you need. So in verses 4 through 17, the Lord gives David and really us one of the greatest theology lessons in all of the Bible. The problem with that is I could, and you know me, I could literally preach on verses 4 through 17 for four months. 
just to draw out the lessons of the character of God. Now, I'm not going to do that. Don't amen that. But I'm, I'm going to focus in on the main points. But this is rich. The Lord continues to draw David in a deeper relationship with himself through this. In other words, the Lord schools David here. Let's look at some of the lessons we learned. This really is the primary lesson here. The primary lesson that David is going to be taught by the Lord is this. The Lord doesn't dwell in a house. He dwells with his people. The Lord doesn't dwell in a house. He dwells with his people. Look at verses 5 through 7. We'll read those together. It says... The Lord saying this through Nathan says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I've not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying... Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It's worth noting that the Lord here at the outset makes clear that, that he's not a local deity that needs some sort of house or sacrifices or really anything else from his servants. Uh, this misconception has already gotten David in trouble before. Do you remember back in chapter 6, right before we took our long break, if you, you remember, uh, he looked at the Philistines for instruction on how to move the ark. What do you do with your local deity? Well, what do you do is, is you get a cart, just like the Philistines did. You put the ark on it, and that's how you bring it in. Uzzah found out that that was not the case, right? Wrong. It's possible that David is also thinking along this line when he thinks, you know what my God needs? He needs a temple like Dagon, that Philistine God. No, he doesn't. So the Lord takes him back to school, reminding him of the order of things. In fact, that's exactly what the Lord does here. The Lord is reminding David of the order of things. The Lord tells Nathan, go and tell. Really, did you know all we need are those words? <laughs> Notice, by the way, that when this happens, that very night, just use your sanctified imagination. Did you see that? That very night, it says. Picture Nathan after he had this conversation with David. Both of them are feeling pretty good about the state of the kingdom at this point. Yeah, this house plan is going to be great. It's going to be built. Nathan goes home. He crawls into bed in his jammies, right? He's comfortable. And then what happens? The Lord is like, wake up, go, tell. What does Nathan do? Oh, can't this wait till morning? No. You know what Nathan does? Yes, sir. He gets up, he gets out of bed, he gets his prophet clothes back on, and he goes and talks to David. This is in the middle of the night. He says, go and tell now, so Nathan goes. You know why? Because the Lord's in charge. Amen. He also doesn't say, get this, he also doesn't say, go tell King David. Even though David has only been referred to as king thus far into this moment in this passage. What does he say? The Lord says, go tell my servant. What's the Lord doing here? He's reminding his people of the proper order of things. Friends, do you realize how quickly we mess up that order? How quickly we turn the Lord into our servant? It's just natural for us. Let's be honest. It's what we do. 
In fact, the, the moment that the Lord removes his hand of grace for us for just one second, we begin to treat him like a genie in a bottle that'll fix all our problems and make sure our life goes really, really well. Hey, Lord. Oh, by the way, Lord, um, I, I need this. You know I need it. Lord, don't make me tell you. I'm, I'm going to count to three. Don't make me come up there. As parents, we have those moments too, don't we? Especially as our kids get older. All of a sudden, they start to forget that you're the parent. They begin to think that you're their peer. But you're not. You as the parent have been placed in position over them that is delegated by God himself. I'm talking about your kids, obviously, not mine. That when they transgress that, they're actually disobeying God and not you. Just like us and our kids, Nathan and David forgot. By the way, my servant David, it's not a derogatory term at all. Don't think of it like that. It's actually the same title that Moses and Joshua bore. It also reminds us that like Moses and Joshua, David too is not ultimately the Redeemer. The Lord is. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's the one saving his people. And that's going to become even more clear in just a second. Because the actual message of David continues to put things in the proper order. And then emphasizes the main point again. The Lord dwells with his people. The Lord begins here with a Job-like question, doesn't he? Would you build a house for me to dwell in? That is just full of all sorts of important questions. Does David think that the Lord needs a house? Does David think it's his prerogative to make this decision about where and how the Lord will dwell with his people? But the Lord doesn't dwell in houses. The Lord dwells, again, with his people. It's really the whole point of the redemptive project. Friends, we have such a small view of God. And therefore, we have a small view of our salvation. Remember our main idea, our God is bigger than we think, he's more faithful than we think, so our confidence should be greater than it is. And if that's the case, then listen, our vision for the redemption that he is going to accomplish should be far greater than it is. Let me tell you, if your vision for God's redemption is is simply, and all that he's promised in the scriptures, your vision for his redemption is simply a restored America, that's too small. Don't you see that Israel's vision of the redemption that God promised was too small? So when Jesus came on the scene, he he was recalling Isaiah, knowing that it's too small of a thing for a redeemer to simply save Israel, but he will have to save the whole world. And the leaders of Israel, what? They, They couldn't wrap their minds around that. Because it's not a little dirt in Palestine, but the whole earth is the Lord's. The whole earth will be his temple. The whole earth will be his house. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Anything smaller than that simply will not do. That's why some of the movements, by the way, in our own day are completely and totally bankrupt. Hear me, listen, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't work for the influence of the gospel. Yes, we should work for the proclamation of the gospel in our culture. We should work for the influence of Christian truth and principles in our culture throughout the land. We certainly should pray for the transformation of our society that it would better reflect its creator, yes. 
But listen, you know this, right? Nothing short of the removal of every cause of sin and all the lawbreakers from the earth so that the garden of God fills every square inch of this planet will do. You know that? That's the hope. Just a reminder, you and I will not build it. It doesn't mean we don't participate, hear me, but we're not going to consummate the kingdom. It's actually not going to happen until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But you know what? It's a whole lot better that way. Because then we can labor freely. We can love boldly because the results don't matter. Like, if it brings about a better state in our society, then praise God. But if it leads to our martyrdom, praise God. Either way, we know the end game, right? We know that in the end, that our labor is not in vain. Okay, i got to try to find my way back to the text now, don't I? Step off the soapbox. No, I'm kidding. Um... Listen, verses 5 through 7, what happens here is the Lord reminds David that he never once asked for a house. Remember when he said that? He says, did I ever ask any of the judges that I appointed to shepherd the people for a house of cedar? So so notice his focus in David really here is, is why. Why did he never ask for a house of cedar? Well, it's because those are really hard to take down and carry. And Israel moved a whole lot. Houses of cedar, they're just heavy. No, his point is, I've been with my people, and I will be with my people. There will be no house until my people have rest. See, the Lord actually demonstrates here the love and concern for God's people that David should have. In fact, look what he says in verse 6. This is key. He says, For I've not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt. Even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. That is, I've been moving around with them. And then he goes on in verse 7. He says, wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, that's where I've been, David. I've been dwelling with them. Here is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. Where is the house of the Lord? It's not a house of cedar. It's a house of people. And here's the key. His people do not yet have rest. So don't miss the lesson. God's mission is to be with his people. The Lord's aim is to restore the house of God where he once dwelled in perfect fellowship with mankind and where he will do so again. Even the reference to the judges who the Lord commanded to shepherd his people, they serve to illustrate this point. Just as shepherds wander with their flock, so Israel has been wandering without a permanent home and the Lord has been wandering with them. So, of course, the Lord has not asked why his people have not built him a house of cedar. The Lord's saying, look at my people, David, whom I love. I will not rest until I bring them rest. Are you going to build me a house now? Well, do my people have rest? Then there's no time for you to build me a house. I will not rest until my people rest. And friends, did you know that that's no less true today? See, I think in some ways it should be easier to know, but it's actually harder because when we understand the atonement and redemption, we understand it in a couple of ways. We understand that, yes, Jesus has accomplished our rest. Praise be to God. We also know that he has gone to the right hand of the Father and he's seated. So has Jesus rested from his work? Yes and no. 
See, he's rested from his redemptive work of accomplishing the once and all salvation on behalf of his people by standing in our stead and taking upon himself the wrath for our sins that we deserved. Therefore, now all those who have trusted in him have Jesus' righteousness imputed to them, just as our sins were imputed to him on the cross. It's the gospel. But, capital B-U-T, he's not done. He's not resting. Why? Because I really want you to hear this. It's because Jesus will not rest until his people have rest. Friends, you got rest yet? You look around this world and this culture, do you define it as restful? You know why? Jesus ain't done. As long as we labor on this earth, Jesus labors on our behalf, interceding at the right hand of the Father. Even now, he's putting all of his enemies and our enemies under his feet. Even now, he's laboring for the rest that has promised him. So yes, we have it already. Our life is hidden in Christ. Praise be to God. But then we walk out of these doors, you go home and you toil in the sin of your family, you toil in the sin of your community, you toil in the sin of your own heart, and you think this does not feel like rest. But church, listen, Jesus isn't resting either. He's got this. Isn't that what we saw on the road to Damascus? Do you remember that? When Jesus stops Paul, who was Saul at that time, in his tracks, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There isn't a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ who is persecuted or suffering that Jesus himself does not share in that. He knows. Listen, friends, you, you know how desperately you want to believe that someone understands what you're going through. I know because I talk to you. <laughs> And scripture says the most magnificent, incredible, most unbelievable thing, the transcendent, immutable God understands better than any human being. Specifically, the Son of God who became flesh, who took on our weakness, who is tempted in every way that we are. He knows your trial better than any other human being. He knows your struggle, your suffering. And pain in ways no other human being can, even better than you do. And Jesus will not rest until he brings us rest. How beautiful is that? All of this, of course, leads to the final part of the speech here. And that is this, the the Lord is called David for the sake of Israel. We've seen this before. Remember back in chapter 5, we've seen this, but... I want to remind you again, the Lord has called David for the sake of Israel. Now the Lord is the builder. That's clear from the section of scripture. The Lord took David just as he took Israel. He's been dwelling with his people, Israel, just as he's been cutting off all of David's enemies. There's a, there's a parallel between the two. David is representative in one sense of Israel as a whole. The Lord has done this for the sake of his people, but what's the point? Well, the point is the Lord is the one building the house for his name. He's the one who's going to do it. David was concerned about a place for God to dwell, but God is concerned for a place of rest for his people. So we see that promise. Indeed, the Lord will make David's name great. It's a clear allusion to what we looked at last week in Genesis chapter 12. You you hear that and you know that promise is taken up with the whole of the world. All people will be blessed through him. In fact, look at verse 10 of chapter 7 with me. 
He says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. So now we just, we got to move back. In fact, we got to move back all the way to Exodus chapter 15. If you know what Exodus 15 is, it's the song of Moses. After that great redemptive event of the Exodus, immediately following that, Moses takes up this song and it ends in this way. We read in chapter 15 these words starting in verse 13. It says, you in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till your people pass over, O Lord. Till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Hear this, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And so so Moses, actually caught up in that redemption event that occurred in Exodus, he sings this incredible song to the glory of God. And it ends like this. It's almost like he's looking down the corridor of time. He says... You will do this, Lord. You will bring your people to your appointed place. You will be their God and they will be your people forevermore. If you're there on Wednesday night, that might sound familiar to you. It sounds like God's people in God's place under God's rule. Listen, need I remind us that in 2 Samuel, all of this is being said to a people who rejected the Lord as their king. Do you get that? This is a people that actually put their trust in men and made flesh their strength. That's the people the Lord is speaking of. This people who he refuses to rest until they have rest. Is this a people that have earned God's love? Is this a people who have faithfully followed him and all of his laws? There is not a law that they have not broken up to this point in redemptive history. Corporately speaking. Yet, the Lord here in 2 Samuel 7, quite apart from anything they've done, said, I will not rest until they rest. And you and I doubt the mercy of God? We doubt His grace? Friends, you see how hard it is for us to know Him? What great lengths He has gone to show us that He will save us to the uttermost? That his steadfast love will never fail. This is the heart of our God. And it brings us to the final lesson. Quickly. The Lord is a sovereign, covenant-keeping, priest-king of the whole world. He is. The Lord is a sovereign, covenant-keeping, priest-king of the whole earth. Praise be to God. That's who he is. See, he set out on a mission in Genesis chapter 3 that he is going to accomplish. We have the promise of redemption and we look forward to the day when David's greater son will indeed to return and make all things new. He has been raised up, not just from the body of David, but the, the grave itself. And when he returns, casting death, Satan, and all belong to Satan into hell forever, he's going to do it. 
And I just want you to, I want to point out quickly David's response. Because it's important for us to recognize that David gets it. Like, if you doubt or struggle to see how this is really about David initially having good intentions but poor judgment because his knowledge of God is slightly skewed, all you have to do is look at David's response to what the Lord says to him. David's response is actually the inverse of what we find at the beginning of chapter 7. Starting in chapter 7 verse 20, it says this. For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Again, doesn't that remind you of Job? Like his mouth is just being shut right there. All he can do is utter back to God the word that God has revealed to him in praise and thanksgiving. The Lord will do it. He is reminded of what we should all know but always forget. The Lord's faithfulness is greater than we think. We can pray, Lord, please bring Jesus back to make all things new. Lord, please let me be found standing blameless on that day. And here's the cool thing about that, friends. We can pray that and actually believe that he will do it. Don't put your trust in yourself. Don't put your trust in your thought life and your feelings because your thoughts are still not his thoughts. But what he does is he draws us into a fuller understanding of him and even that is yet but one drop in an eternal ocean of knowledge of God. So let our confidence be full this morning. Listen, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will not rest until he brings us rest. He will return. And and friends, it's not long from now. (laughs) Like, if you got some things you need to do, do them now. Because there's a day quickly approaching when he's going to return and make all things new. Let us be found standing in his work, trusting him, raising our children to know and love him. Laboring even in our vocation in a way that honors him. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's live boldly. Friends, let me just encourage you. Leave nothing on the table. Nothing. This life, hear me. This life is meant to be spent. It's not the real thing. It's a handful of money that our Father has given us to spend for the glory of God. So so let me ask you, if if you're here and and you're just spent, can I ask you, are you spent for living for the glory of God? What is it that's spending all your energy? Honestly, what's spending all your energy that this sheet has been on my pulpit for the last two months because we can't find enough people to share the gospel with kids on Wednesday night? What are you spending your life on? The energy to be found here, people. Spend your energy for something that's going to last for all eternity. All the things we're spending this life on, they're, they're nothing in the light of eternity. Don't you see that? And one day, quickly, it will approach you. And you will sit on your deathbed and think, I've wasted it. And I don't want that for you. In fact, friends... 
Praise be to God for the example that we just laid to rest of a man who spent his life for the glory of God. Who spent his life because he knew what was worth living for and he lived for it. We have an opportunity to live in his legacy, don't we? Can we do that? My heart's broken because I know, guys, I've been with you in the distractions this last two years. Everything's vying for our attention. Everything's trying to pull us away from spending our life for the glory of God. But friends, oh, how worthy Jesus is of your time, your attention, your money for his glory. He's worthy of every bit of it. And it will not be in vain. And I can guarantee you this. You spend your life living for the glory of God. When you're on your deathbed, it will be much like my brother Charlie Holmes. Who will be looking forward to glory. Who knows that he spent his life living for Christ. I'm looking forward to that day. And I know uh, I can be hypocritical. Because just because I'm in ministry doesn't mean I don't struggle with spending my day for the glory of God, friends. In fact, I probably struggle with it more than anybody. <laughs> I struggle with it because it's my job. And I don't need to view it as my job. <laughs> but it's hard sometimes. But oh, I'm so grateful we're in this together. Look at me. We're family. We are in this together. So I'm sorry I had to, I had to throw that. I hope that didn't come across agitated or frustrated. It's not, but friends, it really is the truth. We spend our lives so many things. There's only one thing that's worthy. There's only one thing that lasts, and it's his glory. Would you stand as we pray together? Gracious Father, the apathy is killing us. Lord, it's just... I know I'm in, I'm in it. Lord, I really feel like just as a church, we're still healing. And I know that. It's, it's, it, I know that takes time. That's okay. We're still learning how to trust and to be community again, Father. But we pray that this apathy that, Lord, just we wrestle with would just be put to death in the name of Jesus. Father, we may not have this building ever filled with people. But, Lord, I pray that the people that fill this building are people that really spend their lives for the glory of God. Because, Lord, you, you spent your entire ministry investing into 12 men, and one of those would betray you. But those 11 men, Father, they spread the gospel to the nations. Father, how could it be any different with us? Lord, let us not be motivated by guilt or shame towards any of these things. Let us be motivated because we've seen the beauty of King Jesus and we know he's worthy. And we know he's worthy, Father, because he saved us. We who are wretched, who are your enemies, he has changed our hearts and calls us friends. That he will not rest until we rest. That's how much he loves us. Let that love motivate us to obedience and service for the, for the kingdom of God and for your glory. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Oh, you've been good to this church. You're so much more faithful than we think. So, Father, we confess that we should be more confident than we are. Would you stir up in us, Lord, a greater confidence in not only the work of your Son when he walked this earth, when he laid down his life and when he was raised from the dead, but the work of your Son now as he's putting all things under his feet. Would you prepare us for the day when he will return and make all things new? May we long for it and may we live for it. Father, we thank you for our brother Charlie. 
Lord, as a dear brother said to me the day before his funeral, he lived for this moment. May we be like him. We pray corporately together, Father, come Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.